Hi, folks, and welcome back to Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, featuring distinctly qualified global change makers that are dedicated to creating a healthier planet, one where diversity is lived, expressed, and celebrated. My name is Julian Guderlai. I am committed to a world that allows people from all walks of life to thrive. And in today's episode, my guest is Jim Chu. Jim is an entrepreneur, investor, a philanthropist, and he is dedicated to creating opportunities in emerging markets. Among many initiatives, he is the founder of Untapped Global. And Untapped's mission is to bridge the investment gap in frontier markets by creating alternative financing opportunities for entrepreneurs and empowering the next billion to scale to their full potential. There is a quote and an idea that he lives by, by Clayton Christensen, and it goes like this. Don't worry about the level of individual prominence you have achieved. Worry about the individuals you have helped become better people. And so with these words, welcome, Jim. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, I love this quote. I'm glad, I'm glad you, you shared it with me and we put it into the intro. It's, it's really like the next layer or the next definition of being, being a billionaire. Uh, you know, it's like, how have you helped a billion people rather than have you made a billion dollars? Indeed. Um, I mean, I think uh, the way we measure our success uh, differs from person to person, but I think too often in our very material American world, at least, uh, success is measured by the things that you have. And I, I don't know, I've met very many people who have been happy long term with material possessions and material success. I think there's always the initial satisfaction from achieving that or acquiring something. But ultimately, when, when we can see other people achieve things or uh, see that our presence in the world is making a much bigger difference in other people's lives. I think that's what, at least for me, leads to true happiness. Yeah, that's beautiful. I, I didn't even have to ask you about true happiness and you're already sharing it. I love that because it's really true. <laughs> I'm, I'm fully with you there. It's, you know, it's this, you can take material wealth with you beyond, beyond the, the generation that you're here on the planet to live. And so I think the word legacy needs a really big reframe legacy as something that is really truly left for all the humans or all the uh, living beings on the planet rather than um, just the wealth in your bank account passed on to your direct ancestors. Indeed. I, you, you know, um, and just as a side note, I, I think what you leave to your, to your, to your children, your, your progeny is less about the money that you leave. I think it's more about the life lessons that you leave. And I have mm. two daughters, 11 uh, year old twin girls. And I personally make that uh, my model for how I raise them. It's like, try to live by example and the best thing I can leave them. Well, for certainly it's not money. Uh, the best thing I can leave them is really the lessons that I've learned that they have not yet learned so that they don't have to make those mistakes. And as it is, as we all know, as humans, no one likes to be told what to do. So <laughs> teaching them things is not about telling them what to do, but about living by example and showing them how one could be a better person. I hope. I love that. Um, you know, I wanted to tap into, no pun intended, into untapped and untapped's mission right at the start of this episode, but, but this taking another segue. So this is a question I usually ask way, way later in the show, but you just talked about, you know, um, passing on knowledge and, and, and possibly like even like education at large. And so my question, Jim, is going to be, 
if you were to change the education system as we know it, either alone or with your daughters or with a team of experts, what would you do? Like, what would be some, some pointers where you're like this, this and this and this needs to happen? Well, I think this is maybe a little bit egocentric, but I think my background uh, is really about experiencing different people, different places, different cultures even. Uh, as I may have mentioned to you, I was an exchange student in Germany when I was 15, and that was truly eye-opening for me when I lived in Germany and really understood how much language and culture had an impact on how you relate to other people. And I think that was one of the first things. I, you know, From Germany, I then went, obviously, back to the U.S., but then was an exchange student in Japan. And then I went and lived in Taiwan for a year and a half teaching English. And then I went to live in uh, Paris for three years. And then I went to live in Buenos Aires for a year. And each one of those experiences taught me something that I didn't expect. Right? And I think... If there is something that I wish upon my children and upon the educational system is to give children the opportunity to see different things, see things from a different perspective, experience a completely different life. Because I think the moment you do that, I think you gain a little bit more compassion, first of all. It's not just about me or us and what we do, but also about, hmm, maybe there's another way of thinking about this. It starts off with, maybe there's a different way of saying this. And a different way of saying this means a different way of thinking about it. And maybe there's a whole different reality. And I think you can't understand that until you experience it. And so I think uh, most of my uh, motivation and my, uh, my hopefully a little bit of compassion that I have is really from the fact that I was lucky enough to be able to live in so many different places in my teens and my 20s. I love this answer so much, and like, yes, exactly. We dropped in on this last time. We we already we already talked one on one. The fellow exchange student, like that that experience, you know, for those for those of us that have been abroad as teenagers, it's like an instant reason to connect and bond because, as you yeah. said, you can't really you don't fully grasp it unless you've experienced it. And so, um, funnily enough, this is this is not why I asked this question, but it very much echoes my personal opinion. Is you know when we create setups for kids, for teenagers, for youth, for honestly, I mean, you, you could be of any age really, to truly experience another culture and other circumstances. There's some kind of magic that happens. It's like cross-cultural or intercultural learning is like yeah. one of the highest degrees of emotional intelligence embodied. Indeed, indeed, and I think. You know, sometimes I wonder how anybody ever communicates cross-culturally, but I think cross-cultural communication is one of the hardest things out there. Uh, when I worked uh, long ago in the 90s for a multinational American company, I, I, I dealt a lot with um, people from Europe, people from Asia, people from Latin America. Uh, I was responsible for um, a product uh, line in, in, in Europe for a long time. I was also responsible for a team in Latin America for a while. And you get on these calls and you realize that 60-70% of people, what people are saying is actually being missed because mm -hmm. of that cross-cultural misunderstanding. And, you know, I, and this is maybe something very fuzzy to say, but I wonder how much is being lost because we simply don't make the effort to really understand each other. Yeah. We think we understand. We say, yes, 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 yes. But we really don't.
And if we make that extra effort to say, what is she really saying? What context is she coming from? I think it goes a long way to not just understanding each other, which is great, but actually performing better too. Because if you understand what's going on better, then you can react better and you can design solutions better than if you just thought about what you're thinking. This is such a perfect segue into untapped and untapped mission. Because you know, when, when we talk about bridging the investment gap into frontier markets and like alternative financing opportunities in different areas of the world, what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing, what I'm kind of uh, you know, taking in from, from that wording and from, from that mission is that it's taken into account that different places in the world work in different rhythms. And that's a good thing, right? And so the, the I don't know, the American model, the Silicon Valley model, the, 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 the UK model, whatever, they, they might not work in South America or in yeah. Africa or in Southeast Asia. And actually that's for the better because we want to, we want to see the uniqueness of people, of cultures that, to show up. And maybe take us a little bit into the mission of Untapped and like your journey with it. And like, maybe yeah. there's a bridge between what we just I just want to comment a little bit on what you said. You know, I think that's that's uh, very insightful on multiple levels. I think, um, you know, people work differently in different places. But I think what we we often want to do is to cut and paste what we know from one place to another. And then when you mix that with power, uh, whether that's economic power or military power, it gets interesting, if not dangerous, in the sense that it's easy to impose things. And, you know, as the saying goes, money makes the world go around. So much of what is decided upon is driven by those who have the money and wield the power of money. And so we cut and paste the wrong kind of investment models to new markets. Why? Because fund managers need to sell what investors understand and know, not what necessarily works. But what they can sell. And so we then go into, for example, coming from Silicon Valley or coming from the US or even coming from Europe, and we go into Africa with the investment models that we know from the US or Europe or wherever else. Even if those investment models may not be the best, not just in terms of impact and for the people, for the entrepreneurs, but also in ter best in terms of financial performance and returns, which is what investors care about. And at the end of the day, I think that's a big missed opportunity. So let me give you a very specific example of this. There's big hubbub, and I think it's you know, rightfully so a hubbub, about the growth of venture capital in Africa. Uh, in 2020, there was over $2 billion of venture capital flowing into 2.4, to be exact, into Africa. And that's a big growth over the years. Great. But I think it's actually missing a huge opportunity. Venture capital is really appropriate for a certain kind of company, at least the way that it's practiced in Silicon Valley, you know, taking a 2% uh, management fee on the capital under management and a 20% carry on carry, meaning 20% of the extra profit that you make that you give back to investors. That model really prejudges the kind of companies that you end up investing in. You end up investing in um, the, the, the economics and push, pushes you towards investing in asset-like companies that have mm -hmm. winner-take-all markets. Great. And some of those businesses and companies and sectors 
need that investment. That's fabulous. And they will be truly majorly impactful. But that is only one small slice of the market opportunity in Africa. One of the biggest untapped markets in which we focus on very specifically are small and medium-sized enterprises that can't get capital. So in the US, in, in Europe, in Asia even, in many other markets, especially more developed ones, there are multitudes of facilities available for small businesses to borrow money, to grow, etc. If you're a new dentist out of school, you can borrow money for a bank to buy all the equipment you need to become a dentist. If you're a cafe owner, you can borrow money from the SBA to start your business. If you're in Africa, those facilities are generally not available to you or only available through what I would call loan shark rates and loan, loan shark methods. And so what happens is that a massive part of not just the population, but the economy, 70% of the sub-Saharan African economy is informal. Hmm. That is all excluded from the formal financial markets. Now, a lot of people like to talk about that's that huge. in terms of equity and justice, and that's not fair. Okay, that's true. But it's also a huge missed opportunity. Now, obviously, I'm not the first person who's realized this, and many people realize this. The World Bank talks about it a lot. You know, a lot of the figures that I, that I use, uh, $5.2 trillion is the figure that World Bank has in terms of the funding gap for micro, small, medium-sized enterprises in developing markets. So a lot of people know the problem, but they haven't figured out the solution. And so we're not trying to say that we know it all or we have all the solutions or all the answers, but we do think that there's an opportunity here, and it's quite historic in terms of an opportunity, to turn the, the, the financing model on its head. So let's not think about venture capital in the way we think about it. Let's not even think about bank loans in the way we usually think about it. But let's talk about digital and digitization and how data is changing how we do things. And one of the things that it's starting to change, at least in the developed world, is how we do financing, how we lend money, and how we move money, and how we get money to the people who need it. That is starting to creep in a little bit in terms of how we lend or do financing in developed markets. But, you know, in developed markets, you already have a lot of facilities available. So you're not really that making that big of a difference. In developing markets, there's two things that are different. One is that opening up that space creates much more impact because it's so underserved. And therefore, the upside, the financial upside of making, providing financing to SMEs is much higher. But the second, too, is in, in Africa, at least, and in many frontier markets, those markets are only coming into structured focus today because of digitization. Whereas 20 years ago, analog peer-to-peer, -peer. I mean, that's how humans have operated for thousands of years. That was opaque and untouchable. That was just the informal economy. You know, big companies like Unilever come in and they only work at this very top of the iceberg level and everything underneath the waterline, invisible. But more and more, all the entire iceberg is becoming visible. Not only visible, trackable, traceable, and manageable remotely with things like Internet of Things.
And that actually is creating the opportunity for financing that didn't exist before, right? We can now finance things that help people directly. So why do we go through a bank? Because, well, you know, we can't, we can't you know, give money directly to an African, can we? Wait a sec. Maybe we can give money directly to an African with the digitization that we have. Maybe we can fund her water treatment system or his motorcycle or his irrigation system directly using digital assets. So our mission is to bridge that gap. And the way we do it is we take all the things that are digitizing today, the specific examples I just used and more, a water treatment system that provides clean water to a community, an electric motorcycle that a, um, an unemployed youth turns into a taxi so that he can make money. We turn those into the things that we finance and use technology, IoT, and digital payments to make sure that we can capture the revenue flows from those assets. That way, we make it safer for investors to invest. We make it more scalable to do this at massive scale, reaching literally billions of people. And at the same time, we're empowering a whole new generation of people and returning capital to investors. And you know, ultimately, I'm a capitalist. Ultimately, I think money is what will drive economic development, which will drive wealth, which will drive empowerment so that people are allowed to make their own decisions and really determine their own destiny. Because when where you get your next paycheck or where you get your next you know, capital to grow comes from the outside, that's always a bad thing. Because outsiders never have the same incentives as you do. And so, you know, whether you want to call it imperialism, whatever, <laughs> you know, when money comes from the outside and is imposed top down, it never leads to good things, in my view. But when yeah. money can go into the grassroots and flow upwards and create wealth equally and in a way that really understands the local markets, I think things can be much healthier, much more equitable, and ultimately much more wealthier yeah this is, this is a really powerful uh, you know explanation you just went went on there I, I feel like there is a a core or a kernel of truth and that is humans helping humans is yes. the, the, the the simplest part of it right we've been doing this for mm. thousands of years and we've overcomplicated it through institutions and banks and making everything extremely official which in a lot of places in the world, you know, we could look very critically on that, which, you know, you, you mentioned that in the beginning too, but that has been bypassed either for injustice and inequality reasons, or because it simply wasn't applicable. Right. And so the peer to peer opportunity is ultimately like, it's like a l leapfrog opportunity for a lot of places that have been lagging behind from a, a leapfrog kind of, back to the future. I would say exactly leapfrog back into back to the future with with the values of the, the ancient ways of trading of simply like Absolutely. connecting straight to the person or um you mentioned iot a few times like investing into things that then help people straight away and it, you know we know this is the future we we know, we know that this is, is this is the interconnected future it's just a matter of how is it unfolding in a way that it yeah. um 
it doesn't turn into a like a massive control grid from a third party but it, it actually okay. turns into what you said like freedom and like people are exploring and unfolding their own destiny in that sense well you know so, so a couple of a couple of comments there i think you know going back to this institutional stage in in, in um, the history of the U.S., Europe, and, and many other countries, you know, I, I, I can I can see how, especially in the last five hundred years, uh, institutions matter, and they still do, and they always will. And I could also I would also argue that institutions were the right way to make certain transactions more efficient between people, between large group of people versus another large group of people, um, because we can't all do one to one with everybody. Or we couldn't, at least, right? And so those institutions provided trust. They provided security. They provided common understanding. I think that, um, in and I use the term "back to the future." I think to a great extent, there's an opportunity, not yet realized. There's an opportunity for places like Africa to go back to the future and go directly from an analog peer-to-peer relationship in, in how we exchange value, trade, finance, buy and sell things, to a digital peer-to-peer model where the middleman has a much more pure role of providing transparency and trust and less about, okay, well, I'm going to actually contort or distort the information going be- between the two for whatever purposes. If you go to any developing country, the biggest building in every country is what? The bank or the banks or the top three banks, whatever yeah. it is. Because no, it's totally right on, yeah. They're the institution that is in between everybody and everybody else. And by doing so, they take off a nice little seven, eight, nine, 10, 20%, whatever it is, for doing something that truly isn't necessary in a digital world and so i think there's some incredible opportunities to go back to that human to human interaction where you know so in our platform what we're endeavoring to do is not just create the opportunities for an american or a french woman or uh, a, a britain to directly finance an african or a bangladeshi or a person from Cambodia, but rather to also get to know them as human beings, to actually see their pictures, hear their stories, and even communicate one-on-one across borders. You know, I I, I always, um, so I worked many, many years in in Haiti um, doing water, decentralized water infrastructure. And I was always so amazed, and I still am amazed, how much penetration something like Facebook has in those markets. Everybody uses Facebook. Mm-hmm. And the most out there person living in the most out there rural area with a phone can then suddenly message with Bill Gates or with me or with thousands of other uh, people in the United States that they never would ever have the chance to, to, to do. And that makes a difference. It not only humanizes who they are, it's not just a picture on TV or a statistic, but you actually get to know them. And you realize, you know, and this is a bit uh, trite to say that we're all the same, but 
that we also get to realize that the things that are motivating them, the problems that they're facing, aren't that different than the things that are motivating us and troubling us. And so we can understand that. It doesn't mean that you trust everybody, but now you have more information to ever, for you to decide who you can trust and who you want to give your money to. Yeah, that's an interesting, and that's an interesting part of it is like, who, who do we actually want to be in those relationships with? I mean, you mentioned Facebook and how it has really covered the globe in that sense. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot in the last few weeks and months. And, you know, I believe Facebook as a social media um, giant has passed its zenith and it's, it's, it's dying for sure in certain forms. And so the question for, for me is like, how, how do people really want to be in touch with each other through the way we're helping and empowering each other? So as you're saying, you know, a big part of um, financing someone, no matter on which continent they live um, or, or supporting their journey can in turn come also with a, a shared kind of interface, which, you know, is it's a very exciting next step of it. But without yeah. hypothesizing about that, I would, I'd love to know if maybe like a story or, or, or two, you know, you've mentioned Africa as a continent a few times, and I know you've been in Kenya, in Mali, in South Africa, and other places. Is there like a great example story where you can um, really um, kind of highlight on TAP's mission through, through a, an actual story of impact? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the question is where, which one to choose. I'll, I'll give you a couple. I'll, I'll give you three um, very different. Yeah, let's go. Let's uh, go for three. <laughs> <laughs> very different models. Um, so, in uh, one of the things we finance in Kenya, for example, are uh, mobile mobile solar powered irrigation units. So, solar powered pumps are nothing new, and there are numerous companies who provide them, which is already a great thing. And um, and just for background, the pumps help the farmers using solar energy get groundwater so that they can irrigate their crops. So, um, so that's already a really nice um, technological innovation. But one of the issues is twofold. One is sometimes the farmer doesn't have enough money to buy the pump. So, well, if there is enough economic value in owning that pump, then financing takes care of that. So there are more and more people providing financing for that. So there's some innovations around that, which is good. But then there's a situation where that farmer may be too, actually too small to own the right kind of pump or right kind of solar pump. So even if he had the money, it may not make economic sense for him to own that mechanized irrigation unit. Uh, yeah. So what we've done is we've used this technology to create a pay-as-you-go solar. And it isn't, oh, fake pay-as-you-go in the sense of taking you know, the payment of the, the cost of the pump and dividing that over 24 months, but rather allowing a farmer to say, oh, I'll only use three days of this. Now that I'm not using it, another farmer can use it for four days. And now he's not using it, then another farmer can use it for six. So now a farmer that for whom previously it may not have made economic sense to own mechanized irrigation, can get the benefits of mechanized irrigation without having all the money and without having a big enough plot of land to make it economically viable. And so we've actually created a business model there that allows that farmer to get the services of that irrigation paying on a day-by-day -day basis. 
And then because it's mobile, it's mounted on a trailer and it's all solar. It, gets, it can be moved to his cousin or to his neighbor or whoever. Or if you know, one farmer is doing pow-pows, which is um, one kind of crop, and they move it over to a different kind of crop, well, it works because they grow at different seasons. So we're, if you more in technical terms, we're increasing the utilization rate of that asset so that more and more people can benefit from it. And you know, all I can say is that it's been incredibly impactful because we see these farmers tripling and quadrupling their profits just because they can increase the amount of uh, hectares that they're, they're, they're irrigating with this mechanized irrigation. It's a great example. And I also love that you have the technical terms always very ready and handy. <laughs> Um, I, you know, I'm, trying, I'm holding I'm, myself I'm back from saying so them me because <laughs> that's the easiest way to do it. But I realize, you know, sometimes that's just jargon. Sometimes it's just jargon, but at the same time, like it's, this is really where a lot of the, you know, I guess the evolution of who we are as a species and as a society in this planet has to happen is the mix of, you know, the story, narrative, spirit, um, energy, and pragmatic, like very pragmatic steps of like, yeah. what's this technically and what's what's this in, in a scientific procedure so that where, where those two blend, for me, there's a lot of sometimes paradox, but often behind the paradox, there's a lot of, um, yeah, um, you know, quotation marks here, like enlightening kind of um, next steps that become visible where we understand, like just like you said, like a plug, or pl plug and play or like a pay as you use kind of system is, not just more affordable for someone that let's say lives in Kenya, but also it just makes so much more sense. Like, did we really sense. all need to own a lawnmower? Do we really all need to own our own, I don't know, surfboard or like our own two cars in the driveway? I mean, at some point, I hope so that like, you know, future human, um, our future human ancestors, or well, we will be their ancestors, future generations will look back and be like, you guys were so wasteful That's in crazy what you were doing to yeah. have everything for yourself. Yeah. Yeah, it made no sense. Like, well, why, why do you, you need right? four cars for three people in the family? Right. <laughs> that just, yeah. and the car just sits around doing nothing most of the time. Doing nothing most of the time, which that's kind of where it pragmatically connects again, not just from the, the environmental perspective or from the, you know, idea of like, how do we, how do we minimize our carbon footprint or, or it's really more, how do we bring this into balance with the yeah. pragmatic step of economics too? Like this is an asset sitting around, like makes, makes no sense. It's just depreciating value. And, you know, it could, could be used by someone. Absolutely. I mean, look, uh, you know, if we, if we go business as usual and how, uh, Africa developed for how, as some of your listeners and you may know, Africa will add another billion people in the next 30 years, a billion. It's going to double yes. the population in 30 years. Um, if all of them in the current billion that, that are alive today, that are mostly under 25, if they all go through even half of the consumption rate as Americans do, we're doomed. This right. is where the, the myth of uh, overpopulation comes from, right? It's like, exactly. in my perspective, the, the, the planet can hold many multiple billions of us, just it's not how we all living resources. like Americans. Exactly. So we have to continue to evolve in the way we do it. And You, you know, I, I find it just on a related note here, I find it, you know, how, how, how proud we are as Americans. Oh, look, you know, as a San, person in San Francisco, Oh yeah, Uber came from San Francisco. Yeah, really innovative. Wait, hold on here. Uber is just 
sharing? Why are we so proud of the sharing economy? Because the rest of the world has been sharing. It's like, we're coming late to the game, guys. We're finally figuring it out. We're finally figuring out that sharing might be actually more cost-effective and better than owning everything ourselves, right? And a great example would be Airbnb, right? It's, and it's, Airbnb, it's like, exactly. Yeah. You know, why do we need to have all these houses sitting empty? And I think Africa is much more, you know, culturally and, and resource-wise, much more natively a sharing economy than the US or Europe or most of the European countries. And so applying these um, technology, uh, technology enabled, I should say, business models that allow people to share assets, just like this irrigation pump that I mentioned, that goes a long way. It goes a long way into empowering those farmers, to making more of our resources, and ultimately uh, making more room in the world for more people. So, so you said there's three stories. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how much time we have. We heard from Kenya. Let, <laughs> All right. So um, in South Africa, we, we work with um, clean water. And there's a partner there that we work with. Um, and, you know, a husband and wife team, James and Kate. And they've built, and, you know, mind you, I, I worked 10 years in, in the water sector. And they built some incredible uh, water systems. And, but, you know, your typical bankers and venture capitalists don't understand, it's like, you know, well, we're not going to give you a loan because, you know, you don't have a balance sheet and how do we do this? And so, you know, it's, it's challenging fundraising. And so what we do with them is that we finance the equipment that they build that then allows them to put that equipment into grocery stores, both in rich neighborhoods, but also in very poor neighborhoods out of the way, throughout in townships and so on, throughout South Africa, so that those stores can offer clean water at one-fifth the price of what's already available. So most South Africans buy their water in five-liter jugs that get transported there, bottled water. But what they do is they take municipal water, use a water treatment system that is on site, cleanse it, and allow people to fill the water. But they've outfitted the whole system, like many that every single one of our assets that we financed are, outfitted the whole system so that you can remotely monitor everything that's happening in real time. So you know water quality in real time, so you know that the water is safe, you know how much is being pumped. And now that store, regardless of how poor that store is, they can get this water system because they pay nothing up front but they take 50% of all the revenues from the water that's sold. Hmm. We take another percentage and Kate and James and that company takes another percentage. So we take that percentage because we're repaying what we financed for the machine. So how is it, how, it sounds very technical. It's like, so what Jim, it's just, you know, just a water machine, so what? What it means is that more people get cheaper access to water in more places while the store is making more money while Kate and James can scale up their business and serve more people, while I can give a return to investors who have invested in clean water. Mm. While win -win -win. also you're kind of taking some of the, you know, ex excuse me for mentioning this, but like the absurd power away from the, the you know, the privatization of water. Yes. It's a very, it's a very weird um, energy on, on our planet, I, I feel, you know privatizing water to companies like coca-cola 
um, I think it's another one where in uh, you know two, three, five decades, humans will look back and just shake their head and say, "You did, you did what? Like, why didn't you just <laughs> use the the streams that you had? Oh, because you polluted them. Okay, so why didn't you just clean that and share that back to the people, right? And so those are the small steps on the pathway forward. That's very fascinating. Yeah. So I, you know, I, again, how much time do we have, but we can go on with stories. Give, sure. give us one more. So we went to, we went to Kenya <laughs> with you. We went to South Africa. Uh, what's next Mali? Uh, we can go to Uganda and uh, talk Uganda. about electric motorcycles. So, um, as I mentioned earlier, um, the population of Africa is very young. So you have hundreds of millions of, uh, very young Africans and many of them men all looking for jobs. And one of the most important things for your typical African to be able to do is to get from point A to point B. And so motorcycle transport or motorcycle taxis is, um, people think, oh, just so what? That's, that's not impactful, that's not important. Absolutely it's important because people's livelihoods depend on going from point A to point B, point B to point C, and then back to point A. That includes the mother with three, three children that needs to buy food. That includes the mother with four children that needs to uh, take her goods and sell them over there. Totally. Right. And so, so what we've worked with, with yet another partner uh, called Zembo, and they uh, have electric motorcycles in Uganda. So we help them finance the electric motorcycles at an affordable rate so that many of these unemployed youth can get access to a motorcycle so they can start making money. And after two years, they own it. So it isn't just a, okay, well, um, you know, uh, indentured servitude forever because, and this is how in most places, in many places around the world, including Africa, how the motorcycle leasing business works. You have one, usually it's almost a guy who owns, a, who has a bunch of money, who buys up a bunch of motorcycles and then basically rents them out to people and he takes what is effectively 100% interest while the people driving the motorcycles get nothing and they're in forever indentured service. Right, they'll never own that scooter or bike. Yeah. There's no ownership, there's no wealth creation, so on. So in this model, that motorcycle driver, yeah, you can't just give things away because that leads to the wrong incentives, but works doing what he can do, which is drive a motorcycle and transport people around to make money, to pay off that motorcycle, to pay himself not only a salary, but also extra income. But then after two years, he owns that motorcycle. So now he actually has wealth that he can do something with in terms of building wealth for his future. So we're really, if you will, um, again, don't want to use the trite trite phrases, but pulling, alleviating poverty and pulling people out of poverty by giving them opportunity to make money, to generate and create wealth and have wealth as part of their, the things that they own. Yeah, it's, it's sometimes the very simple models that are really what's needed on this planet. I love that you took us on a little journey on to three different places and three different places. <laughs> yeah, very that. different, three very different places. Yeah. Um, well, Africa is a huge continent, right? It so it's, I mean, it of course, each country, each culture has its own um, rich flavor of 
of stories, of success stories, of impact stories. Jim, I, I have one more question for you. And before we go there, I want to I wanna just hear about something that, you know, we kind of talked about offline right, right before we started. So really, it's two questions. So, so um, when you're not building, um, you know, impact business like Untapped, or there's also the Nest that we didn't really talk about today. Um, you mentioned Haiti and, and you know, the, like the water purification a little, a little bit. But when you're not doing that, um, being up in the air is one of your, your favorite hobbies. I just love Indeed. to hear like a few sentences about that because I think it's always <laughs> so, so beautiful to hear kind of a mix of what people are creating and, and a little bit of the passion for something that just gets us in touch with nature. Yeah, so one of my uh, hobbies is paragliding. I've been flying paragliders since the early 90s. And, um, you know, I, I always say that uh, we all need more awe in the world or for our, in our lives. And it's amazing. I would say that um, even after well, close to 30 years now of flying, close to 30 years of flying paragliders, I'm still awed when I fly. Wow. Because when you can uh, take off from the side of the hill at uh, 8,000 feet, and then 20 minutes later, you're at 17,000 feet, and you fly 200 kilometers, all using only the sun's energy. Because the way we fly is the sun heats up the ground and creates rising pockets of air, updrafts, that we then circle in to get up high. That still gives me an immense sense of awe every time I fly, every single time I fly. Nice. And I just love it. I, I, you know, I, I also fly planes, but I have to be very honest, it's just nowhere near as interesting because you're a robot. You know, you put your power settings in, you get the right RPM, you get the right bearing, and, you know, you're a machine. But when you're flying a paraglider, you can really feel the air. When you're circling in a thermal with another bird, or not another bird, but a bird. <laughs> and you can you have to stare straight into their eyes because you have to know where they're flying just so you don't bump into each other. It's majestic. It sounds majestic, that's for sure. Thanks for taking us for a few a few seconds into the up up into the air. You definitely added something to my um, you know, bucket list of dreams uh, you to, you know, to, to step, step definitely yeah. paraglided before and it always had this effect on me Long but only in tandem cross country right? flying yes yeah, so tandem is already mm. quite nice and but definitely i would recommend and this is not common because many people go on tandem paragliding flights and they do a little flight and it's over if you have the opportunity go on a cross country we call it xc cross country tandem paragliding flight you will be amazed oh wow Whew. Ne uh, yeah, ne next step from my adventure list. Um, my final question for you for this episode and for today, you know, is, is my, my favorite question. The reason why I started this podcast is to just continuously drop in with people on the, you know, the, the here and now in relation to the seven generations that come after us. And so, um, you know, Jim, the, the question is, is something along the line of like, what, what's your dream? What's your big vision for this planet, for our species? Um, in the context of seven generations out, like, you know, if you, you can tap into your heart, maybe close your eyes, however you want to answer this question. Like, what do you, what do you want? What, what are you here to, to inspire, to leave, to gift so that, that seven generations later, um, you know, people well, might I, not remember us personally, but 
the impact we created in this time. I, I'm tempted to talk about um, untapped in the business and you know what we hope we can do in transforming how finance is given out and to whom it goes to and so on. But I, I think to answer that question more honestly, um, I think I can really only think of one generation now, which is my daughters, uh, Lexi and Tali. And, um, you know, I just want to be the um, best father I can be so that they can be the best people they are when they grow up. And it sounds cheesy. It's trite. I know it is. But I suppose the cheesiest and the most trite things are the most real. And that's yeah, it doesn't sound about. cheesy to me. It sounds real. This is this is why I'm asking the question because when we when we drop in on you know on on the real just as much as on the um, the the creation and the impact and, and you know we had we had this conversation. Um, it's it all connects, and that's really how we we create regenerative impact when we take our. You know our children and and you said one generation out i'm sure you know 10 years from now if i'll ask you that again there's there's maybe like <laughs> the first talks about becoming a grandfather and so yeah um, the generations then just start to keep rolling right <laughs> I, I i suppose the the way i think about that is the way i raise my you know I, the philosophy in raising my kids is like you know i have no idea what they're going to do after they leave my sight right the only thing i can control are the lessons that uh, i teach and uh, you know People don't, whether they're kids or adults, people don't listen to what other people tell them. So it's really about um, what I show them uh, uh, by example. And the only thing I can control is how good or bad of a person I am and how good or bad of an example I am so that they hopefully one day will inspire others, whether it's their children or others. And so... To a great extent, I don't worry about what comes after because if I do my job well in conveying what I need to to them, then the rest of the job is done. Thank you so much, Jim, for that answer, for you know, dropping, dropping in onto that, that personal question at the very end here. I had a great time with you in this interview. And thanks so much for sharing about Untapped, about your journey, about flying, about Thank you. How, you, how you do what you do. Can I make one final plug for some Please, of the things? Please, go that, for it. Uh, uh, you had mentioned The Nest. And so The Nest is Untapped Global's um, initiative to get more international investors from all around the world to open their minds to look at frontier markets. Um, and, and so we host um, weekly and monthly, uh, virtual and in-person and in-country events to help international investors from around the world and in particular american investors understand markets like those in africa and those in southeast asia a little bit better so that when they do invest it turns out well for them and it turns out well for the people they're investing in and if you want to know more go to untapped-global.com and you will find out more and I will, I will link that out in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time today, Jim. And thank you so much for the work you do in the world. Thank you, Julian. It's been a pleasure. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. Here we are again. This is your host, Julian. And I hope you truly enjoyed this episode of Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast. Check out my Patreon, best way to support the podcast, myself and the mission. Lots of exciting perks and ways to be engaged to receive more value. 
That being said, thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to hit subscribe, review the show, share it with the people you love, and have yourself a stellar day. Thank you.